Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. James Bilson of the School for Health talks about the use of physiological and biomechanical measurements to inform physical training regimes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, very nice welcome. I hope everyone can hear me okay. And uh, for those of you that aren't resident on campus, welcome to the University of Bath. And uh, um, when Hillary contacted me, we thought this was a really good opportunity just ahead of the Olympics to highlight some of the really good work that's going on within the university in, in relation to, uh, to, to sport particularly. Uh, and what I'm not going to do is try and take credit for everything I'm going to present this evening because this represents the, the whole of uh, our sport health and exercise science group uh, efforts within the department. Um, I wasn't quite sure at what level to pitch the lecture this evening, so uh, I, I may well, well uh, skip over some of the uh, more, more detailed aspects, given that it looks like we've got 90 to 95% of the audience from, from off campus. Um, um, so you have to help protect me from a few hecklers, which I can see from our department, fourth row from the back on the left. Um, I thought I'd start by telling you a little bit about the department uh, for, for those that aren't familiar with us. Um, and then I thought I'd go into my particular uh, pet topics uh, in sports nutrition uh, and exercise performance. Uh, moving on to look at performance in extreme environments, particularly endurance exercise performance in extreme environments and research we've done there. Um, I'm then going to talk a little bit about some of the work we've done in relation to monitoring hormone profiles in athletes and how that may be related to uh, training adaptations, uh, and how that might help us to structure training programs for, for, for athletes. Uh, but also then, just very briefly, tackle this perennial issue here at the bottom, which is, of course, when we're training athletes very hard, and we're exposing them to lots of stress, uh, we have to be mindful of the fact that uh, taking things too far uh, could result in musculoskeletal injury, and that's something which we definitely need to prevent in order to uh, continue the training cycle and enhance performance. Um, I will finish off by just mentioning a few projects which are either ongoing or uh, uh, evolving uh, at the moment, um, uh, and they're projects which I'm uh, less of a, uh, an authority on, and so I thought I'd leave it until the end and give them a brief mention, uh, because they're certainly relevant here. Uh, the department, uh, well, the School for Health was set up back in 2003 and merged into the Faculty for Humanities and Social Sciences here at the uh, university as uh, Department for Health back in 2010, and I took over as head of department in uh, August last year. Uh, we have various aims, which you can read on our website, um, but one of them is to build on external links uh, and conduct high-quality uh, research within the sport, health, and exercise sciences. Um, and uh, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about how we're structured. Uh, in terms of mainstream health uh, research, we have Professor Chris Eccleston uh, in the Centre for Pain Research, Professor Anna Gilmore in the Tobacco Control Research Group, and Professor Paul Stallard uh, leading up the Mental Health Research and Development Group. But by far the biggest part, and about 70% of our department, is made up of the Sport, Health and Exercise Science Group. And we've just made an overseas appointment for a US professor who's going to be joining us in April, uh, Professor Comrade Ernest. Um, but one of the things that might be worth you knowing before we get into the lecture is that uh, traditionally sport and exercise science comprises three main elements. We have a biomechanics group, uh, and that's largely looking at uh, the application um, 
of um, uh, principles of, uh, of human movement. Uh, we've got the psychology group who are looking at the psycholo psychological aspects of, uh, in relation to sport and exercise. Uh, and the physiology group, which is largely the application of biological principles uh, to the study uh, of uh, human responses to exercise uh, and sport. We have a number of uh, uh, programs. We have a, a relatively large undergraduate program in sport and exercise science now, regularly ranked among the top in the country. Um, we now take on 90 students each year on our BSc Honours program. Uh, we also have complementary postgraduate programs, a sport and exercise medicine program for uh, doctors who want to specialise in sport and exercise medicine, which is a, a relatively new uh, medical specialty. Uh, but also uh, a postgraduate diploma and master's programme in, in sports physiotherapy. So together, the, these programmes really uh, mould well together, and as a, as, as a department, as a faculty, we're, we're able to support them uh, ac across the various disciplines which are involved. So that leads us on to our research. Um, and an awful lot of our research now uh, revolves around physical activity and, and public health benefits. Uh, in relation to the role of diet and exercise in the prevention of obesity and in relation to chronic disease more broadly. Uh, physical activity and health and well-being across a range of populations, uh, but particularly among children uh, and, and uh, the ageing population. Um, and associated with this is the more social sciences aspects of looking at uh, motivation and, and, and motivation particularly for, uh, for health behaviours. But what we're going to talk about this evening, because of the, the nature of the topic in relation to sport, is our work around performance and function particularly, uh, and we'll move on at the end just to talk about a new focus for us, an emerging focus, uh, which is getting an awful lot of support at the moment uh, around disability, sport and health. And really what we're talking about here is applying all of our knowledge and skills um, to the unique study of some of these populations who have very unique uh, risks and responses to exercise. Our group broadly works uh, across uh, the spectrum from basic uh, molecular sciences all the way through to applied sciences and what we're trying to do is to take the best knowledge we can gather in the laboratory environment and apply it to various populations um, in order to either enhance performance, prevent injury um, uh, or down here in this case uh, uh, lead to health uh, benefits. Um, what I will say right now is that I think it's important to recognise that if we want to do large-scale controlled studies, we can't always do them with individual athletes because there just aren't enough of them. If we really want to tease out uh, some of the responses to uh, sport and exercise interventions, uh, we have to look at other training populations. And, of course, the military uh, are a, a relatively good cohort um, uh, to, to use in this regard. We just have to be careful about how we apply the findings from this population to the elite sports population. Uh, so we'll concentrate very much on this optimization uh, of, uh, of function uh, as we go through the presentation. So let's start with nutrition uh, and, and metabolism. And uh, both from my own point of view in terms of my background as a PhD student and uh, Dr. James Betts, who's in the audience, uh, We've uh, got a, a considerable uh, uh, expertise within the department in this field. Uh, and we were both supervised by Professor Clyde Williams, who's uh, um, just retired from uh, Loughborough University, uh, who published this statement quite some time ago. And it just highlights for us, I think, the importance of diet and nutrition, uh, particularly to uh, sports performance, both in terms of 
sports performance on an acute basis, going out and performing, uh, but also in the ability to sustain your health over a period of training. Uh, and we'll look at various aspects of that. We've known for quite some time now that uh, when people perform endurance exercise, uh, going out for a run or a cycle ride, one of the things that happens is our muscle glycogen concentration gradually drops over time. And what tends to happen is there's a critical low level at a point where fatigue tends to occur. So for quite some time now, we've associated muscle glycogen depletion with fatigue during endurance exercise. And so there's been an awful lot of focus on how can we maintain these levels of glycogen? How can we optimize them before training? How might we be able to give food products to athletes during exercise to maintain their carbohydrate levels, which is essentially uh, uh, what, what we're talking about here? Uh, how can we maintain their muscle energy stores to maintain their exercise capacity? And how do we help them recover post-exercise? Quite a few studies have been done on modifying diet, uh, where we go from the very extreme cases. Um, um, so you've got your Atkins diet here uh, in, in the white bar, these people on high-fat, high-protein diets. We've got our typical mixed diet here in the purple bars and a high-carbohydrate diet, which is typical for an endurance athlete. Uh, and what we see is time to fatigue is very much related. So if we put someone on a treadmill or a cyclogometer at a fixed intensity, uh, the more carbohydrate they've been eating in the days leading up to the, uh, the event, the greater they'll, they'll perform uh, or the, the, the longer they will last. Um, and that, uh, that, that seems to be a very consistent picture uh, across time. Uh, and again here uh, being shown more recently um, uh, in relation to uh, this is actually feeding carbohydrate during exercise. But in order to really understand this, we need to get into the, uh, to the science of it. How, 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 how does this actually, actually work? Um, so um, we've got uh, a typical endurance athlete uh, would have between 250 and 500 grams of glycogen in their uh, skeletal muscle. Um, and they'll have a, a smaller source of glycogen in the liver, which is slowly released during exercise into the bloodstream, um, um, which allows us to circulate glucose uh, to supply it to the working muscles, the brain, and other vital organs. If we ingest carbohydrate during exercise, we can increase our blood glucose concentrations. But importantly, we can also spare these other sources of glycogen by using this preferentially. Um, so by using things like sports drinks, carbohydrate drinks during exercise, we can spare some of these other sources of carbohydrate so that we can last much longer during endurance-type exercise. And people have done experiments now where they've looked at uh, uh, different uh, concentrations of sports drinks uh, and seen this, this kind of dose-response relationship, which seems to uh, be optimal uh, up, at the, uh, up at the top end here. So it seems that um, uh, we, we're starting to look at uh, why there might be limitations at the top end. Is there a limitation to how much of this fuel we can use during exercise? Uh, and it seems... Certainly at the uh, uh, level uh, of the gut, there seems to be some kind of limitation. So even if we feed very high amounts of carbohydrate, we're quite limited in how much we can get into the bloodstream and then utilized uh, actually by, by the muscle itself. And we've got some really smart techniques for, for looking at the rate at which uh, carbohydrate is oxidized uh, or used as a fuel during exercise. Um, if we cut out the gut and use uh, uh, infusion techniques, we can uh, achieve much higher rates of carbohydrate oxidation. 
Um, so we're starting to get a clearer picture, but what about recovery? Um, and uh, uh, James and uh, Clyde uh, have uh, produced a number of nice uh, review articles recently, uh, but you can see here that if we feed carbohydrate immediately after exercise, we can get our muscle glycogen concentrations back up very rapidly uh, within about two hours. And that's because there are some particular responses post-exercise at the level of muscle that help us to take on board this fuel and store it back as glycogen. If we delay these feedings by even two hours, it can be six or seven hours before we see the same level of muscle glycogen replenishment uh, in, in the muscle. So we're starting to get a feel for not only the type of carbohydrate, which is important, the concentration of carbohydrate, which is important in a sports drink or, or a post-exercise feeding, but also the timing of it uh, in order to gain the benefit of this immediate uh, post-exercise uh, re response. Um, and this is why we take a, an evidence-based uh, approach to this work uh, rather than uh, relying on the opinions which are often sold to us by the, the sports drinks uh, companies. Um, humouring me. Um, um, so I, I think um, th there's an awful lot of um, uh, uh, spin uh, out there um, in, in this uh, literature um, and I think uh, one of the things uh, we, we, uh, we do here is we take an evidence-based approach to our work. We look at the physiological principles by which these kinds of ergogenic aids, as we call them, to enhance performance uh, can really work uh, and we, we provide advice which uh, makes a meaningful difference rather than just sell sports drinks off of the shelf. And there are various ways by which you can achieve these kinds of responses. And actually, solid meals immediately post-exercise uh, can achieve very similar benefits uh, if they're the right types of meals. <coughs> um, so this immediate uh, post-exercise feeding uh, becomes very important, particularly if the length of recovery is, is shorter than, than, than might be expected. When I was working at the Institute of Naval Medicine, um, I became very uh, familiar with this area and it was of great interest to the military who often have to perform arduous bouts of prolonged exercise with limited time of re recovery, uh, often not with the best um, uh, nutritional provision. Um, and uh, they were particularly interested in the, the, the sports drink uh, uh, area uh, so that they could potentially provide rehydration solutions um, for um, uh, for military personnel working in warm climates. And at the time, there hadn't really been any work done on whether these kinds of solutions could be beneficial for exercise performance in, in fairly extreme hot environments. Um, and so we, uh, we did our work in a 35 degree C environment in an environmental chamber. 
uh, where we brought uh, military personnel in to run on our treadmills in these simulated hot, humid conditions. Uh, and we got them to do an initial bout of exercise, which uh, lasted on average about 70 minutes uh, in each case. Um, and they, uh, they took on board water uh, dur during these trials. Uh, and then in the uh, four-hour recovery period, uh, we gave them either a placebo or a carbohydrate solution. And then we asked them to run at the same speed to fatigue uh, in, in the afternoon. Uh, and again, you can see here um, that we've got this increase in endurance exercise capacity uh, when they've uh, consumed the carbohydrate solution during this four-hour recovery period. So again, supporting this idea that this uh, rapid replenishment of glycogen during recovery, as well as the replacement of body fluids associated with dehydration, uh, particularly during exercise in the heat. Some of these individuals were sweating two litres per hour while they were running on the treadmill in the heat. Uh, so there's quite a lot of fluid to replace uh, on completion of these events. Um, but uh, even uh, in the heat, seems to be a particular advantage. I talked earlier about some smart techniques we might have to uh, measure the uptake and utilisation uh, of this, uh, this extra carbohydrate that we're feeding. Uh, and in my second PhD study, we used uh, a stable isotope of, uh, uh, of carbon, 13C uh, carbon, to enrich the glucose, uniformly labelled glucose. Uh, and what happens is then when the glucose is utilised by the muscle, the 13CO2 gets released back on the breath. So you can actually measure how much of this uh, glucose has been oxidised uh, during the recovery period and then during the subsequent exercise period. And so you can see here we've only fed 55 grams of carbohydrate during the, the the condition here with the white circles. Uh, we've fed 220 grams in this condition with the black circles, and you can see this increased rate of utilisation uh, of the carbohydrate. And what's happened is we've basically suppressed our uh, free fatty acids, uh, which also supply fuel during exercise normally. Um, uh, these have been really suppressed by the constant feeding of carbohydrate. Uh, but what happens is that the, the body is much more uh, efficient at utilising and sustaining exercise based on carbohydrate as a fuel source. Uh, and so they're, they're able to exercise for, for longer when they've had the uh, greater amount of carbohydrate um, uh, during these trials. At this point, we also got quite interested, not only in the short-term effects in terms of enhancing performance uh, of using these kinds of uh, ergogenic aids, but also in the health benefits. And I was working with a colleague at the time who was particularly interested in immune function uh, and uh, infection rates uh, in athletes uh, and uh, was keen to work with me with military populations as well. And there are a number of articles around at the time which demonstrated that there are quite significant immune disruptions uh, post-exercise, particularly when individuals haven't been taken on board carbohydrate as a fuel uh, during those exercise periods. And uh, uh, around the late 80s, um, they, they came up with this open window hypothesis. So does this immune disruption, this down-regulation of the immune system post-exercise, does this create an opportunity for, for infection to take hold of the athlete when they're exposed? Um, so that, that was the theory at the time. So we can look at it on an acute level. One bout of exercise suppresses the immune system. But also, if we look at uh, elite athletes training over a long period of time, um, we, we see uh, relationships where we've got something called slivery immunoglobin A. Uh, which uh, seems to be associated with upper respiratory tract infections. It's the main immunoglobin that protects us from infection in the, uh, in the throat, in the oral mucosa. Um, and these studies with elite uh, Australian swimmers showed that uh, 
Uh, basically, the lower the salivary IgA concentrations were, the greater the upper respiratory tract infections in swimmers. Um, salivary IgA was 4% lower for each additional month of training, so continued to decline over the training period. Um, and we can start to see some thresholds appearing. So salivary IgA concentrations lower than 40 milligrams uh, per litre seem to be associated with a threefold greater risk of infection compared to those with particularly high concentrations. Uh, so there seemed to be this uh, sort of dose-related response uh, where the rate of decrease in salivary IgA across training was predictive of a respiratory tract infection. So the open window hypothesis looks something like this. So <clears throat> if you're... Um, moderately active, um, uh, then you have a relatively low risk of upper respiratory tract infections. You're healthy, you, you look after yourself, um, uh, you uh, go out for your 30-minute uh, walk each day. Um, but if you're sedentary, you have a very low level of physical activity, you have a, a heightened uh, um, uh, risk of upper respiratory tract infection. Uh, and, of course, if you're an athlete who's putting your body through the paces each day, you seem to have a very high uh, risk of a respiratory tract infection. And the question is, how can we help protect athletes uh, uh, against this kind of response? And so the first question is, what, what, what is happening to immune function? And it seems that there's exactly the inverse relationship uh, where... Uh, people who are moderately active and live a healthy and fulfilling life, uh, they seem to have this uh, relatively heightened level of immune function uh, compared to our sedentary people uh, and our athletes are, are, are right down at the bottom and they've got immune suppression uh, throughout their heavy periods of training. Um, so that's the, uh, that's the theory at least. So you start to look then at uh, ways in which we might be able to help athletes and uh, one of the primary responses we see if athletes don't take on board carbohydrate during exercise is we see a particularly heightened level of stress hormones. Um, and there's a number of studies out there which have demonstrated particularly this elevated cortisol response to exercise, one of the main metabolic stress hormones of interest. Uh, and in response to that, we see a number of immune functions which are suppressed. Uh, and so the question is actually if we provide those interventions, if we provide that carbohydrate and possibly other um, fuel sources, can, can we overcome some of the problems? Again, we did a number of studies. Uh, this is Sam Oliver, one of our PhD students, when I was still working with the military, and uh, uh, we were looking at prolonged um, restriction of food and fluid, which is uh, quite typical for uh, military personnel in exposed conditions. Uh, we restricted their fluid intake by 75% of their daily requirements. Their energy intake were restricted by 90% of their daily requirements. Uh, and, of course, we see this quite rapid decline in salivary IgA secretion, uh, which fairly rapidly, within six hours post-exercise, uh, with refeeding uh, and rehydration, seems to come back up towards uh, baseline levels. Um, so a, a, a fairly uh, typical uh, response. We've done some short-term work more recently as well, looking at other aspects of the immune system. Uh, and, again, this is a a two-hour high-intensity uh, run on a treadmill here. Um, and what we see is if we don't give the athletes anything other than water, uh, certain aspects of immune function start to drop away post-exercise, whereas if we feed carbohydrate immediately, those immune functions are well-sustained in relation to rest, uh, and we don't see any long-term consequences. Um, so these are the uh, kinds of responses that we're, we're, we're typically uh, seeing. Uh, and just very recently, this has just been accepted for publication, in response to the same bout of exercise, we see some of the saliva um, um, 
antimicrobial proteins, which are also uh, suppressed if we don't feed carbohydrates immediately post-exercise. So carbohydrates in, in the form of uh, largely glucose solutions seems to be incredibly important to uh, uh, recovery from exercise for, for a number of reasons. Some of the things I can't really talk about today, which we've got ongoing um, with, uh, with our partners, UK Sport, um, we're looking at lots of... Um, uh, potential nutritional supplements in relation to uh, enhancing performance on various uh, um, events in relation to uh, uh, the, the Olympics. Um, and um, there's just one example here which uh, uh, I, I know is being looked at, uh, a study published uh, fairly recently um, where these uh, individuals uh, had been fed uh, half a litre of beetroot juice per day um, which uh, increases our nitric oxide concentrations and makes the whole metabolic process more uh, efficient, supposedly. Um, and uh, we see an increase in power output uh, during an exercise bout after six days of supplementation. Um, the other thing it is, achieves, which is helpful for scaring your family and friends, is it, it turns your urine red. Um, so um, uh, be, uh, be, be aware. But uh, th there are some really novel uh, solutions uh, on the market now uh, which have been tried out in relation to the Olympics. And, of course, uh, um, uh, partners are not particularly keen to uh, advertise uh, some of the things they're working on ahead of the Olympics because they think they've got a market led lead. Um, so uh, I'm not, not able to go much further than that this evening. But... Um, um, we can maybe talk about it afterwards. Um, in relation to extreme environments, then, this is back to my interest in exercise in the heat. <clears throat> We've uh, known for some time that, uh, and obviously we, we, we don't expect uh, too much heat in relation to the London 2012 Olympics, um, although it would be nice uh, if we had a better summer this year. Um, but we do know that once we get above 25 to 30 degrees C in terms of ambient temperature, we start to see a drop-off in endurance exercise capacity and, and performance. Um, and so, again, the question is, is there anything we can do to prevent this? Is there anything we can do to limit the, 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 uh, the, the problems that athletes might suffer uh, in, in, in these conditions? Um, and typically, what we've always thought is that uh, when athletes exercise in the heat, they get these very high core body temperature responses, uh, fever-like symptoms, uh, hitting around 40 degrees C core body temperature uh, during exercise in the heat. Whereas if we come down to environments which are typically 20 degrees C or less, what tends to happen is people thermoregulate. They, they do reach a higher core body temperature, but it tends to stabilise. Uh, whereas when we're exercising hard in hot conditions, we're less able to do that. Uh, and, and so we've always thought of this high level of core temperature causing fatigue. Um, uh, but it's a very complex picture now, and I don't think we fully understand all of the uh, limitations to exercise performance in the heat. Um, but we had, a, we had a good go at trying to unravel them in a heat stroke consensus meeting in Cape Town, which I was fortunate enough to be invited to by Professor Tim Noakes uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, and uh, I don't want to baffle everyone in the audience, but... Uh, we realised how little we knew having sat around the table for two days discussing it and uh, I think we came up with something which pretty much agreed with this, uh, this very complex diagram. Uh, and what it comes down to is that we think these high core body temperatures, they are related to fatigue and they are the trigger for fatigue. Um, but actually there are lots of other complex physiological responses going on. 
when we get elevated brain temperatures, we start to see changes in levels of arousal and the amount of electrical activity that the brain can produce. Uh, and so we see this reduction in voluntary activation, this sort of withdrawal of muscle st uh, uh, contractile stimulation. Um, uh, but also, uh, you know, we, we, we start to see uh, uh, low blood uh, sugar levels in these athletes which are depleted of some of these carbohydrate stores if they've not been looking after their, their nutrition in the way that we've discussed. Uh, and also the, this mechanism here which we're particularly interested in now. Um, uh, I didn't realize until about three years ago when we really started looking at this how important uh, the gut wall is in protecting us from some quite nasty bacteria that reside within the gut. And if they can actually get through that gut wall, through the tight junctions, and enter the bloodstream, they can cause an awful lot of damage. Um, and we get these uh, lipopolysaccharides, also known as endotoxins, uh, which leak out of the gut uh, when gut blood flow becomes compromised during exercise in the heat. Because we've got this huge demand for blood flow to the muscles uh, to maintain blood flow, uh, for uh, heat loss uh, at, the, at the skin and so other things have to be compromised so gut blood flow seems to be particularly compromised and can lead to some of these quite nasty responses which is similar to responses we see in sepsis patients so we've got really healthy athletes on the one hand uh, but once this starts to take hold uh, can be uh, disastrous consequences sometimes resulting in heat stroke um, Certainly in terms of the brain waves, there's very good evidence now that uh, if we exercise people in the heat, um, we start to see a reduction in the beta power spectrum waves. We can measure this by uh, an EEG cap. Um, and we can express that as a ratio, the alpha to beta ratio index. And we can see this large difference between these people exercising the heat compared to people doing the same exercise in relatively cool conditions. Um, uh, and, and so we get this kind of relationship where for every increase in core body temperature, we see this change in the alpha-beta index. Um, and at the point of fatigue, where people seem to reach about, about 40 degrees C, we're seeing this fairly extreme response. And so is this uh, related to uh, the onset of fatigue during exercise in the heat? Um, <clears throat> so we, we see this uh, sort of uh, during hypothermia, this voluntary uh, reduction in, in activation uh, so you can see in the pink bars here, we've got this reduction. This is the ability of the muscle to produce force, basically, and it's dropping off as we become hypothermic. Um, and so I'll just very quickly show you the consequences uh, of, uh, uh, of, of this from a real-world event, which I'm sure some of my colleagues have seen many times before. Her body has run out of fuel. No calories to burn. Systems shutting down. The legs are there, you just can't feel them. The eyes still see, but through a gauzy veil of delirium. At this point, Sean Welch is aware of two things. The finish line is so close, and someone so close behind. After more than 140 miles, it's come down to less than 100 feet to that damn line. It gets better. 
just yards behind, her stalker appears. It's Wendy Ingram. for fourth place um, <clears throat> now of course uh, you know we, we, we're told that their bodies were obliterated we don't actually know what caused fatigue in those consequences uh, in, in that situation um, but uh, you know we can uh, we can understand that they were they were almost certainly uh, glycogen depleted to an extent their core body temperatures were certainly elevated to what extent we don't really know some of the things that we're doing now is we're able to take measurement instruments out into the field and actually measure real life uh, responses to some of these events and we've done this uh, with both with the military uh, and uh, and with various athletic populations now um, so uh, the, 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 the area that we've been particularly interested in with the military is whether we see this endotoxemia, uh, which uh, is in association with a, uh, a reduced uh, immune function, a reduced immune surveillance uh, for endotoxins leaking from the gut um, uh, during exercise, uh, and whether that uh, in itself leads to some of the consequences related to heat stroke. Um, Certainly in primates, they've done a number of studies now to demonstrate that uh, if you wipe out the, uh, uh, the gut bacteria, um, you, uh, you, you don't see this endotoxin response, uh, and uh, these primates seem uh, much more heat tolerant. Uh, and so the question is, are there things we can do to reduce endotoxemia uh, in humans, uh, which will make them more tolerant of the heat, uh, and possibly even enhance their performance during exercise in the heat? Uh, We've just completed a study with the military. Uh, I can't really present any data at the moment because we're waiting for that to be released by the Ministry of Defence. Uh, but certainly there's an indication there that uh, uh, immune disruption and the associated endotoxemia is related to uh, uh, those who are susceptible to heat illness uh, during exercise. Um, so uh, there's ongoing work there, and I think the, 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 uh, the challenge now is to see how we can intervene with athletes to try and prevent these kinds of conditions uh, occurring, uh, and there's a, a number of options on the table for how that might, uh, uh, might occur. 
So I want to talk to you next about uh, work we've been doing in relation to trying to help uh, athletes uh, and coaches design training programs based around hormonal responses to exercise. Uh, and, and this all relates to the fact that really for many years we've been trying, in, trying to design particularly strength-related training programs in relation to testosterone responses, which were thought to be incredibly important in terms of development of muscle size, muscle strength, um, and... Uh, uh, a, a number of different uh, programs uh, have, have been tried out um, uh, in relation to uh, uh, these are seen to be uh, uh, training programs which lead to an increase in muscle size uh, in uh, and you can see others uh, relate more to the development of power and, and specific types of strength. Um, And one of the things that was noticed is that uh, th this uh, particular protocol, which is designed to increase muscle size, seems to be associated with the greatest slivery testosterone response. So there's been quite a concerted effort on monitoring slivery testosterone responses uh, in athletes, uh, thinking that uh, this was quite important for the development of uh, muscle size uh, and, and uh, various parameters related to strength. Um, and taking this work uh, to another level, uh, they, they recognize that athletes are different. They're individuals. They're not just part of a group. Uh, and actually, they respond very differently to different forms of exercise. Uh, and here we can see four different uh, training protocols and athletes having peak testosterone responses to, to different ones. So we've got four individuals who respond uh, highest to, to this particular protocol, uh, five here, uh, another four here, and uh, a few down the bottom there as well. Uh, athletes responding very differently. Uh, and, and what they demonstrated in this study is that in terms of strength gain, this is one repetition maximum, uh, just a, a means of measuring strength gains. Uh, if they trained athletes to their minimum testosterone response protocol, uh, they got no response at all in terms of improvement in strength. If anything, there's a slight decline here. Um, and then when you train them to their maximum testosterone protocol, uh, you see this much greater response where they're adapting to training. Um, and uh, we, see, uh, we see the reverse uh, here where they've done the, the T-max protocol first with this cohort. We've seen these uh, uh, elevated gains in, in terms of one rep max uh, strength gains. Uh, and then that's fairly well maintained when they uh, move across onto the other protocol. Uh, what we don't know is what would have happened if they'd continued to train in, in this particular testosterone max protocol. Um, there are obviously other hormones which are important, and, and people have looked at others, but uh, we, we see a fairly similar picture here. Um, uh, and in this particular protocol, they, uh, they, they had two types of training program, one which elicited a high testosterone response, which you can see here, uh, sorry, high growth hormone, high testosterone in this protocol, uh, and one which uh, elicited uh, uh, no, no real response at all. Um, so much lower intensity. And this was one of the few studies which have actually measured protein, what we call fractional synthesis rate. It's the, the, the laying down of protein, the synthesis of protein. Uh, and they saw no difference uh, whether the individuals were training with a, a high hormone um, protocol or a low hormone protocol. Uh, and so th there's a lot of question marks now over how important testosterone really is in relation to uh, muscle protein synthesis and, uh, and, and muscle growth and strength development. Uh, and one of the hypotheses that have been put forward um, is that uh, 
maybe testosterone just puts us in the right mood for training. Maybe if we train with a high testosterone response, we put more effort in, we get more out of our training cycles. And so that's why it's important here, you know, because it stimulates the mechanisms to make us uh, uh, put more into, uh, into our training sessions. So one of the things we uh, realized is that we really need to start trying to monitor individuals during training cycles and also looking at multiple responses. Uh, and so we're, we're uh, desperately trying to get this project off the ground where we're going to attempt to measure EEG wave formation from the brain at the same time as measuring saliva hormone concentrations with a, uh, through a, a small sensors on a gum shield, um, uh, core body temperature, heart rate responses. Um, it seems a bit way out and wacky, but I, I think it, it's an important step forward for us and it, it allows us to work with colleagues from across different departments and faculties uh, across the university um, to get the best uh, we can uh, out of uh, this kind of approach. Uh, so this, this sort of interdisciplinary approach to our work is becoming more and more uh, important as we move forward. I'm just going to finish then by talking about work we've done on injury surveillance and uh, I think the reason this is important is because if we want to see athletes adapt optimally to training cycles, we need to keep them injury free. The less time they can spend uh, rested up uh, repairing their wounds, uh, the, the better. And uh, when I was working with the military, uh, the main task for me was to implement an injury surveillance and injury prevention program. Uh, and we came up uh, with our colleagues in the US uh, with this, uh, th this approach where... Uh, we first of all try and quantify the size and nature of the injury epidemic. Uh, we then identify through statistical means the, the risk factors for certain types of injury. Uh, and then we put in place intervention programs where we can then monitor the effectiveness of those interventions and hopefully find solutions. And uh, through our work, we identified a range of risk factors for military personnel uh, for musculoskeletal injury, some of which are considered modifiable. Um, and uh, we uh, published a paper uh, back in 2008 which, uh, which summarised our findings from our, our work with the British Army. And of course some of that you can see would be relevant uh, to, to athletes as well. Certainly if you look at uh, biomechanical risk factors, uh, nutrition, um, you know, the type of equipment we use. Uh, we don't see many athletes cigarette smoking but uh, you know, there, are, there are still a few playing rugby I think. Um, um, and, and what we did on the back of that work is we designed a number of intervention programs. Uh, one was with the highest risk group in the military, uh, the parachute regiment trainees, who for all intents and purposes are the athletes of the British Army. Um, and uh, we did a number of studies looking at their energy expenditure, uh, their cardiovascular strain, their heart rate responses during training. And we tried to design a much better program, which was much more progressive. Um, and uh, what we uh, also found is that they were, they were shy of around 1,000 calories per day, their rations versus what they were utilizing during training. Uh, and so we put in place uh, a fourth meal for them in the evening, a much better selection, physical selection program, uh, and a training cycle. And you can see from some of the figures here that uh, we reduced the number of trainees that were medically discharged and had to be thrown out of the services with career-threatening injuries. Um, uh, but also the pass rate uh, went up from 43 to 50. And so, uh, uh, you know, quite a sizable impact on, uh, on, the, on this training environment. Uh, just by working through that process of identifying the relevant risk factors and putting intervention programs in place. And we've just published this paper in the American Journal of Sports Medicine uh, with one of our sports medicine physicians, uh, where we've basically uh, uh, reduced uh, by about 50% uh, uh, lower limb injuries 
by using orthotics, um, uh, which were individually tailored to individuals uh, based on uh, uh, pressure plate measurements. Um, so when they entered training, they had these measurements taken. The orthotics were designed for them. They put those in their running shoes and their boots. Uh, and uh, over the next 12 weeks, uh, we saw this 50% uh, reduction in the incidence of injury uh, in the soldiers that were wearing the molded orthotics compared to those that weren't. Um, so again, quite a, a, a sizable impact. Uh, colleagues at the university now are, are doing very well with the uh, rugby football union, formed a very nice relationship and uh, running a number of injury surveillance programs with the RFU, um, uh, including the elite uh, program as well now, I think. Um, uh, so uh, we're, we're taking a similar approach to various aspects of elite sport. Uh, and uh, a colleague uh, is over here for a year from, uh, from Brazil uh, doing her PhD in uh, injury uh, surveillance in Paralympic sport. And uh, we're just about to publish a paper just to try and highlight where at this stage uh, the main injury problems are in different types of sport. And then in the, uh, in the future, uh, we'll look to identify the risk factors and intervene uh, with these different populations uh, to try and prevent and drive down some of these injuries. So just before I finish, I wanted to highlight uh, the next uh, uh, big thing on my agenda. Um, we've just launched a uh, disability sport and health research centre. Uh, the university's been uh, uh, attracting philanthropic funding for postdoctoral researchers to come and work in this discipline for us. And it's really about taking some of our skills and knowledge forward uh, with uh, uh, disabled populations, physically disabled populations particularly, um, and, and you know, on, on, a, on a very basic level, looking at how the general physically disabled population can benefit from regular physical activity, um, working with uh, military colleagues, and particularly lower limb amputees returning from uh, um, Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, how they can uh, benefit long term from a, a, a physical activity uh, program. Um, but also some work with uh, the British Paralympic squad. Um, and of course there are natural links here because some of these individuals are actually going forward now for selection for the Paralympic teams. Um, and it's about how, how do we best prepare them and how, how do we ensure that they maintain those physically active lifestyles uh, and benefit long term. Um, <clears throat> So the, uh, the, the vision is a, a research centre here at the University of Bath um, um, and uh, we uh, intend to uh, continue our high quality research with this novel population which has received very little attention. I think it's uh, a sort of sad indictment on where our discipline is and uh, uh, I hope we can do more. So that's how it's going to look, hopefully. Uh, our colleagues in the D Department of Sports Development and Recreation are working on this much bigger uh, support centre for Paralympic sport, uh, and we'll uh, provide the research arm as well as these links to military rehabilitation uh, and work with uh, physical activity in the general disabled population. Other work which I should mention um, uh, related to motivation and uh, health behaviour change uh, among the wider population, as I say, a particular focus on, on, the, on the young and the elderly. Um, and uh, uh, colleagues working on uh, adaptations of the neuromuscular system in relation to, uh, to, to training. And obviously that's of relevance not only to athletes, but uh, to, to anyone uh, participating and benefiting from, from regular exercise. Um, and uh, couldn't go without... Uh, uh, mentioning some of the work that uh, is being led by uh, Dr. Akisalo, um, uh, who uh, I, I guess his work could be described as a, a cross between research and consultancy, because it's the work that 
works with the individual athletes directly. They benefit from it directly. Uh, it leads to immediate impact. Um, and uh, let me just see if I can get this to work. Uh, a lot of Aki's work focuses on optimal technique, individualized optimal technique through biomechanical analysis to enhance performance, uh, particularly among uh, sprinters. Um, and uh, we can see another, another example here. Um, so I'm not a particular authority on biomechanics, so I'm afraid I can't go into any more detail than that, but there are people in the audience that can if uh, we have questions. Uh, I just wanted to finish by saying we've looked at uh, optimal training uh, for adaptation. Um, we've looked at the role of nutrition and ergogenic aids to enhance short-term endurance exercise performance. Uh, we've looked at the role that that might have in maintaining the health and well-being of athletes uh, and uh, finally touched on injury surveillance uh, and injury prevention programs and how important they are uh, to the success uh, of our athletes. So thank you for listening.